good to see everyone out this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're excited that you're here. We ask that you stay uh, for a little while after the service so that we get to know you better, uh, get to meet you and, and talk to you a little bit. Um, if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. <clears throat> we'll be, uh, or Hosea chapter 4 rather, we'll be get, beginning in Hosea chapter 4 in just one moment. It'll be the first text of our study, um, but I, it, it's been good to be here this morning. It's, I encourage, um, I, I really love the, the songs that we've sung so far, that last song especially. I, I, I absolutely love the, the lyrics of that song, thinking through just how powerful our God is and, and singing about the, that great I am. So I appreciate um, Derek leading us in, in that. Um, I appreciate the prayer that was given by Adam, and, and, and some of the things he said in there, the devil really is striving to always try and, and guide all of us, everyone, um, to go into his ranks, to begin to fight for him, to be a part of his captive army. And we need to be mindful of that. Um, last week we talked about, uh, well, what I said was the first of many thoughts about the need to think more deeply, just in general. But especially when it comes to the decisions we make, our reasoning process, the opinions that we form, the conclusions that we come to, we need to make sure that they are guided ultimately by God and His Word, His will. I, I want to truly emulate that verse in Psalm 119 where it says that your word is a light to my feet, uh, a guide to my feet and a light into my path. We need to view his word in that way. And, and in every decision, in every thought we have, we want it to be guided, counseled through his will. And so, uh, as I said, there were a few things that I wanted to talk about with regards to that. Things I wanted to think um, either more deeply on or just reevaluate. So many things I think that are, are, are some, so many things today, ideas, I feel like we just kind of brush through them very quickly and, and quite easily because, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who just don't want to think very deeply at all, but especially about serious things, especially about eternal things. Uh, and this morning's lesson is going to be no different from that. I want to focus specifically on shame. Um, and, and I want to look at it in view of how God talks about it and especially how the world talks about it. This is one of those things that, that just the world in every respect says the very opposite of God on. Um, and, and a lot of times I think it's a, a pretty good you know, rule of thumb to say, you know, what are we supposed to think about something? Obviously, we want to go to God's word first and foremost, but if the world is saying one thing, it's very likely that the opposite is what we need to be focused on, um, and especially when it comes to shame. You, you hear people all the time saying that you should never be ashamed of yourself. You know, it doesn't matter what you do. You especially see this on, like, Facebook or when people are talking about their friends. You know, it's their birthday, and they just write this, this you know, lengthy blog about their friend and, and how long they've been friends. And they'll, you'll inevitably see, uh, especially among young ladies, I don't know what it is, guys do this too, but especially among young ladies, they'll say things like, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you've ever done, even if you, I've, I've literally seen this, even if you've killed somebody, I would help you bury the body. And it's like, I, I mean, I don't know if that's real friendship. That sounds more like Stockholm Syndrome or something. But people say such foolish things, and it's ultimately because their standard is not coming from this. 
And so I want to look at what the Bible has to say about shame. We'll get to 1 Peter chapter 4 uh, later in our study. But just three main points that I want to make. And first of all, I want to talk about just what I think the main problem is today. Uh, in Hosea chapter 4, when you look at how God speaks about shame, it is always in, in a way that is a consequence of sin that someone has committed. It is always the consequence of sin. And, and it's, it's specifically a consequence that we don't want. In Hosea chapter 4, in verse 6 beginning, a very familiar passage in verse 6, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. In verse 7, the more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. Um, this is interesting because here God is speaking about this in such a way as to say, this is going to be the penalty, that I'm going to change your glory into your shame. It sounds like something that's supposed to be feared. But a lot of times, especially in our culture today, what you find are people, they are not afraid of shame. In fact, they like to invite as much of it on themselves as possible and say that it's actually something to be proud of, to go against what God has said, to, to do what's evil and so flagrantly in, in our lives. Let's, let's just do whatever we can because you know what? You only live once. People do this all the time, say things, such foolish things like this all the time. Um, and ultimately, I'd say it's because they're not guided by, by God's word. Over in Jeremiah chapter 6, Jeremiah chapter 6, keep this in mind, what we just read in Hosea, how when, when God speaks about this shame, it is in the form of it's, it's going to be a punishment. And it, it's something to be afraid of. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 6. What I, one thing that I think you find about this, this notion of shame and, and how uh, I believe it's natural within us, Jeremiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. Jeremiah asks, uh, as he says, Thus saith the Lord, he asks, Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Now, you could go back to Genesis chapter, uh, chapters 2 and chapter 3 and find, uh, I think, a pretty, good, um, a, a, a pretty good case study of what this looks like. I generally think that we all have a natural sense of shame when we are born, unless there's just there's something wrong uh, in, in, in our minds. Uh, generally, we have a pretty good indication of, of what shame feels like, and we are pretty, <laughs> uh, we, we don't like the way that feels. We don't like to get embarrassed, especially at a young age. You see young kids uh, afraid of embarrassment all the time, and that culminates especially in teenage years. I think it is so natural that even in the beginning, the creation account, when you see Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, at the very end, it says that they were naked and not ashamed. Once they have sinned and they realize what they have done, what is the first thing that they do? What's the first emotion that they have? Well, they got to cover up. And why is it? Because they don't want to be, they don't want to go naked before God because they understand that something has changed. Through that sin, the consequence is death, and the consequence was shame. They didn't want to uh, bring themselves before God. They were afraid, so they hid themselves. They even tried to cover themselves because they were ashamed. While this is a natural, I would say this is a very natural uh, thing that we begin our lives with, 
shame and, and, and the fear of it, I think it's something that we can also lose. And as we see in Jeremiah chapter 6, even God's own people, people who, who should have been trained in the law their entire life, trained in His words throughout their entire childhood, brought up in it and grown as a man or a woman and supposed to be firm in His will, even God's people can forget how to blush. You can learn to become callous. And this is one of the, the, one of the reasons I wanted to start by talking about this is because the, I, this is why I think it's so dangerous. We need to be careful that we are not looking to the world who is constantly saying you don't need to be ashamed about anything, who are doing shameful acts just in the streets, and, and, and what, they're, what they're doing is praising it and glorifying themselves, exalting themselves for doing these things. Just because they don't have any shame does not mean that they are the standard by which we want to follow. No, we, we want to see what God has to say about this. Over in Isaiah chapter 5, finally, uh, with, with this point, in Isaiah chapter 5, <clears throat> again, another very uh, familiar and also powerful statement made by God through, through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, one of uh, the many woes that he gives here, beginning in verse 20. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Now you see there, just in those couple of verses, many woes that are given. Um, and, and specifically, I think you, it kind of culminates in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Um, and, and all the time, this is what the world does. They call evil good and with no standard, but this is how I feel. And a lot of the times you, you'll hear this take the shape of, well, whether it be on, on social media or you know, a book that someone's reading, generally it's on social media nowadays. But, but people will just say, you need to accept yourself. No matter what the, 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 um, the, the, the negative you know, consequences are, no matter what the, the act you're doing is, you need to just accept it. You need to accept this bad habit. You need to accept this disgusting habit. Because it's, it's you. It's a part of you. You hear this in, in a lot of different things. And we'll look at uh, more specifically where you hear this. Um, I think you especially hear this when it comes to uh, people's just sexual lifestyles. You need to just accept it. You need to realize that this is how God made you. He made you to perform evil deeds. He made you to, be, to look like this. And to which we should always say, no, he didn't. He made us in his image. Now, we corrupt that. But never should that be glorified. And so, uh, clearly, our standard needs to come from God and not from the world. Secondly, um, I, I just want to know a few things. And this list is not exhaustive for the next two points. It's not exhaustive at all. These are just some of the main things that I think we see time and time again. People talking about things that we need to be ashamed of that the world constantly says we either need to accept or praise. And the first of which would be, I, I would say, unbridled emotions. Um, as we were just mentioning, over in Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, in verse 13, Romans 13, beginning in verse 13, it says, or, you know, beginning in verse 12, rather, it says, The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. 
Now, I think that there are a, a few different ways that lust can be, uh, that, that lust can come out. There can be the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes. There are, there are different things that I think fall under that, that category of lust. But I think the lust of the flesh tends to be one of the, the biggest problems, at least in our society. And it's one of the biggest temptations for young people. Because as you grow and you, and you uh, begin to, uh, in that growth experience, new chemical reactions in your body, things you don't necessarily understand, it causes a lot of questions to arise. What's terrifying is who are answering those questions. You have a whole world full of people that are willing to answer those questions. You, child could go to school. Child could go online. Absolutely terrifying if you do that. Because you don't have to go very far before you find someone who is so willing to give their own standard that has led them down a road of destruction and, and all of their friends down a road of destruction, but they're so willing to give it out to whoever will listen. We need to be there to answer those questions, especially when it comes to things that we need to be uh, ashamed of, not looking like the rest of the world, but trying to look like a holy people of God. And so when, when you have someone... Uh, not too long ago, I, it was just an advertisement on YouTube. And um, it, I, I don't even know how it came up, especially because, you know, there's an algorithm that kind of provides you videos that, based on videos you've watched. And a, a lot of the videos I'd watched were, you know, debates on, on certain things like homosexuality and, and things of that nature, talking about sin and talking about the Bible. So... Why this advertisement came up, I have no idea. But essentially, it was just this girl who started having all these questions come up as she was, as she was getting older. And one of the questions she asked herself is, well, I think I'm gay. And what did she do? Again, she rushed to the Internet. And she took this quiz that, incidentally, what the advertisement was for. It's, hey, do you want to know if you're gay or not? Now, I mean, certainly that's a source you can go to. But I have a pretty good idea that the, or I'm pretty certain that that test is pretty skewed, at least in the results it's going to give. You know how, when you come to the, the transgender agenda, when you come to people who think that maybe they are the opposite sex, a lot of those people are children. There are lots of times where children will come up and say to their parents, well, I think maybe I'm a girl, or I think maybe I'm a boy, even though they're biologically a girl or boy. They kind of throw that to the side. But, you know, the previous day they said something like, well, I, I, I think I'm a wolf. Well, you're not a wolf. And, and no, at no point would we just say, oh, you know what, we need to accept that. And you know what we're going to do? Because we accept that, because we believe that he is a wolf, we're going to throw him in, into the zoo with, in, in, with a den of wolves. How's that going to end up? Messy. It's not going to end up, you know, in, in, in this way that the world tends to paint with a big You know, we need to be proud of this and we need to accept this. You know what happens when you accept it? It leads to a bloody, broken mess every time. And so we need to be careful about, about that, not just with, with things like homosexuality or sexual uh, deviancies like that, but even something like pornography. This is another thing. I especially don't get this. There, you know, people say, well, we, we need to just let young people do what they want to do. I was listening to an interview of a clinical psychologist talking about this very thing. And, and he was basically just saying, it, it's actually staggering to me how, how there's not much study on the effect that pornography has, not even on young people, but just the general mass of people. 
And it, it, it's, it's almost scary how little information we have, how little study has been done on the fact. Now, certainly there's a lot of money that goes into it. But as he started talking about some of the application of, of just people that he had, some of his clients that had come to him, uh, as again, he's a, he's a psychologist, and he would talk about men that would come in and, and talk about this issue that they had. And he would say, never, not one time did you find someone who would say, oh, I'm proud of what I did. I feel like more of a man now, now that I've viewed this content. Almost every time, unless the shame had been seared, unless they'd become calloused, almost every time, they would talk about it in such a way that expressed much guilt and shame. But, you know, the world, I mean, they just say, we need to just accept it, and you know what, it's, it's something that's just a part of us. You need to just indulge. And here there are some people that are brave enough to say, ah, that may actually be the very worst thing for them. It could lead to further, uh, lead to further, not just mental issues, but particularly spiritual ones. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, we'll get to verse 11 in just a moment. But that list that he gives, I, I know it doesn't all have to do with just sexual deviancies, but, but especially at the beginning, so much of that list, about half of that list, is about that notion. The, the effeminate, those who, who, who uh, may think that they need to give themselves over to certain lusts. This is, this is one of the most freeing things about the gospel. The world constantly tells you that if you have a problem, if you have a question in your mind, you cannot escape it. You are bound to that. Essentially, you are a slave to those passions. That's what the world always says. But when you come to the gospel, what Christ says is you may have those, you may have those passions. You may actually experience these kinds of lusts and you, that you don't understand. Maybe that, you, maybe that you even know are not lusts that you should have, desires that you should have. But what Christ says is, I can break you of those bonds. You don't have to continue down that road. I can give you freedom. But the devil wants to constantly make sure that, that we don't know about that freedom, that, that, that people in general don't know about that freedom. He wants people to think there is no escape, that you just need to accept it. Well, that clearly is not the standard that we are going to follow, not, not the standard that the world has. Well, secondly, uh, another thing that I think is very frequently misunderstood is modesty. And, and uh, you can even go back to what we've seen. Uh, Hosea, not just uh, uh, not in Hosea chapter 4, but earlier in Hosea, you find something where, where it talks about shame and specifically nakedness. You don't have to look very far. You go to a college campus and you're going to find, especially in the springtime, there's a lot of a modesty that's going to show up. You may even see in a few churches that there's going to be some modesty that shows up. It is something that I feel like has gotten to the point where it used to be something people were pretty firm about and, and pretty solid on. They knew what they were talking about and they knew what their standard was. But nowadays, it is one of those things, like we said last week, that we just don't give much thought to. Well, I think this is probably fine, but what, what's your standard? I, I mean, I just, you know, I haven't really thought about it, but it just doesn't seem like that big. Well, again... Where, where is that line being drawn? 
ultimately we're drawing lines all, all the while. Every decision we make, we want to make sure that the lines that we are not crossing are God's lines. And the lines that we are, are respecting are God's lines, not our own, not man's lines. Uh, over in Deuteronomy chapter 28, <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 28, when it comes to nakedness, and, and there's a deeper study to be had about uh, modesty and what nakedness is, and we'll get to that eventually. But in Deuteronomy chapter 28, just look at how God talks about nakedness. In verse 47 beginning, he says, as he's talking about this, the curses that will come with disobedience. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. In hunger, in thirst, in nakedness and in the lack of all things, and he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Nakedness is actually one of the consequences of disobedience from God's people. He says, if you go this far astray from me, this is where I will lead you. This is the punishment I will give you. It's, ne it's not talked about in, in, a, in a, a cavalier way, but in such a way as you need to, to fear this. Over in uh, Nahum chapter 3, Nahum chapter 3. <coughs> Excuse me. Nahum chapter 3. Or, or actually, Re Revelation chapter 3. Excuse me. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3. In verse 18, as he's writing to the, the churches of Asia, he writes to... Laodicea, and he says in verse 18 of Revelation chapter 3, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, again, here in verse 18, what does that sound like? That, that God is saying, oh, it's no big deal. To, to expose your nakedness. It's no big deal to me, and it's no big deal for you. It's not something that's shameful. It's not something that you need to be worried about. It's something that you need to be proud of. No, he says, the shame of your nakedness. You don't want that to be revealed. Something similar in chapter 16 and verse 15. He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who, who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not talk about naked, uh, so that he will not walk about naked, and men will not see his shame. Constantly, when, when it brings up nakedness throughout the Bible, it, it couples that with shame. Because there is shame in willfully, ignorantly even, exposing our nakedness when God says, this is something that you need to cover. Um, not only that, but you look at a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 9, a passage that we go to frequently when we talk about modesty. And he says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of a good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. It's not just about, it's not only about covering up, it is about covering up our nakedness. But it's not supposed to stop there. It's supposed to be because there is a modest heart. It's about a desire, an effort to make sure that we are, are portraying, that we are displaying Christ. Not that we are trying to display uh, ourselves in such a way as to get people to look at us more. But we want people to see Christ. And so it's about a modest heart as well. Well, not only that, but we need to be, have the proper discernment when it comes to the roles that God has given to his people. 
time and time again, people, whether in the religious world or in the secular, you, you will see several different articles, people making fun of this, this um, uh, things like you find in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, where it says that the man is supposed to be the head of the wife, the head of the household. And why? Because that is supposed to emulate what relationship Christ has with the church. But over and over again, people will look at that and say, well, that's silly. That's so antiquated. Well, who says? You? Oh, well, that, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm going to go with God instead. The, the eternal, the ancient of days, who has more wisdom, who has a better idea of what leads us uh, away from destruction than the rest of the people who, who just display that destruction in their lives so frequently. So it, this, we see this, and I think we can do this just by altering those roles, by, by acting instead of taking on that role, husbands, of being that head of the house, forcing our wives to do that when it's not supposed to be that way. Or, or on the other end, wives trying to force themselves as the head of the house and not having that respect for the husband that, that, that they're supposed to. You see this even in the religious world when it comes to women preaching. Well, why can't women preach in church? Well, the Bible's been pretty clear about that. You just go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 34. We don't have enough time to go there. But you have that 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You have it, Paul writing to Timothy over and over again. God has made his standard clear. Or people will look at um, what a pastor is supposed to look like. And they say, well, well, you, you must be a pastor. Or, or we have, you know, five different pastors. Well, okay, well, I mean... None of them are married. Well, all except one. Yeah, we actually have a 25-year-old guy that just started being a pastor. And it's like, I mean, is he married? Oh, yeah, he's married. Does he have kids? No. <laughs> and we, they don't care about the qualifications that God has given in 1 Timothy chapter 3 or in Titus chapter 1. It's just something that, well, we don't really have to think about that. But it's shameful to put our own standard before God's. And so we need to be careful about altering those roles or trying to take on a role that is not for us to take on. Um, finally, with this point, I think another thing that, that the Bible makes clear is that we need to be ashamed of, of not, I said weak faith on the chart, but what I mean is intentionally staying in weak faith. Intentionally or purposefully making sure that we don't have to grow past the milk and onto the meat. Over in Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now here is an example where it, it doesn't necessarily say that this person needs to be ashamed, but the indication is clearly there. Because what are they doing? They're putting Christ, they're trampling on the blood of Christ because they've departed. Because they've decided that they don't need maybe Christ anymore or his word. Um, not only that, but you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in verse 5. It says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his... Uh, that, that's Romans chapter, five, Romans chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
in verse 5, it says, I say this to your shame. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about brethren who should have the love of Christ, who should be able to turn the, the other cheek. But rather, when they are wronged by their brethren, they take them to court and they, and they try to wrong them back. And so he says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? What is Paul saying? You ought to be ashamed. Because here, people are supposed to be able to look at you as a light, <laughs> a, a people who brings light, a people who is a reflection of the light that Christ is, people that are supposed to show the world what Christ looks like. But what are they seeing? They're seeing Christians. Born-again Christians feuding with each other and making sure that the world knows that they're just like them. That there really is no change when, when we accept the gospel, when we decide that we're going to make Christ our king. And so he says, you, you need to be ashamed. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, just a chapter prior to that, he talks about how shame is used as a rebuke. Even in, for, in, in chapter 6, I think he uses it as a rebuke. But in chapter 5, you see that uh, implied as he's talking about the brother who has gone astray. Not just anyone, but a brother who has gone astray. And he says, you need to disassociate from that man. Because he needs to understand the shame that he has put himself, that he has put on himself, that he has openly put on Christ. Because he's departed from him. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verse 14, Paul says as much that th this shame is supposed to be used in a way that will bring that brother back. It's not just done in a way that's supposed to be malicious, but it's done in a way that's supposed to bring him back, make him realize that this is not the way. This is not the path that a Christian's supposed to be on. Well, uh, there, again, this is not an exhaustive list, but just a few things that I think are, are uh, prominent in our culture today. But finally, and, and more quickly, I just want to make a few points of what I think the world often says is, is shameful, but God says you need to be strong in. And clearly, the first one is the gospel. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the, to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so we need to be... Uh, <laughs> Even though the world is, is so against it, as you've seen in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapters 1 and 2, wish we could read that, uh, both of those chapters, but we don't have the time. But what Paul says essentially is the world will only ever look at the gospel as foolish. And God uses that. He uses that to, to <laughs> he uses what is foolish, he uses what is weak to give power and give wisdom to the people who will accept the gospel, to, who will accept Jesus. Because again, the world only sees the cross as nothing but a broken mess, nothing but defeat. There, it, he died. But we know better, don't we? Yes, that, that was a terrible and ugly depiction at the cross. But there is great beauty there because that is the very means by which God gives us salvation. And when Christ was resurrected and he beat death, had the victory over it, what he promised us is, promises us is that we will be able to be resurrected in his, in his life. And so we can't be ashamed of the gospel, though the world will call it foolishness, though the world will call it just a people, just for people with weak minds. It's what Richard Dawkins has famously said. It's not just for insophisticates who, who want to believe in some cosmic vending machine in the sky. It is the wisdom of God, and so we can't be ashamed of it. Uh, secondly, 
I don't. I think that this is something else that needs to be discussed in Second Timothy. We can't be ashamed of the gospel, and we can't be ashamed of those who have been transformed by the gospel. Um, in Second Timothy chapter one, beginning verse eight, first of all, it says, "Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner." But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Skipping down to verse 12. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Skipping down to verse 16. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And I wanted to go through those verses just because it, I think it is very easy sometimes to be embarrassed by brethren. This is one of the main uh, uh, points that if you take anything away from it, I especially want you to take this. It is so easy when, when certain brethren make, make dis decisions in their own life, how they're going to raise their kids. Maybe it's more conservatively than, than you would do. Maybe it's a different judgment call that, that, than you would make with your kids. That, that's fine. But when someone from the world comes up and says, that, that is just silly. That is stupid. That, I mean, all, beca all because of religion. You know what we shouldn't do? add on to that and say, it is stupid, isn't it? Oh, they just take that too far. You know what we could say? I, I think they're doing it for a reason. They've been transformed by the mind of Christ, and I don't think that they would make this decision lightly. The reason they're doing this is not to be prudish. The reason they're do is, doing this is not just to be stuffy, but it's because they're trying to raise their children in the strength, in the instruction, in the admonition of the Lord. But so often it's very easy to go the other way and just add on to the insult and just say, oh, these, these people. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't do that. because, I mean, I, they're just so prideful. How self-righteous. We want to be careful about how we talk about our brethren. And we don't want to fall into the trap of speaking about them like the world does. I think especially when it comes to church discipline, this is, this is so easy to do. And I've heard people say it to me, and it frustrates me. Because you have a congregation who has banded together, shown great faith and great, a great bond of unity in Christ by saying, listen, we as a group know that someone has been walking astray and what we want is for them to come back. And what we're going to do to accomplish that is exactly what Christ told us to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we are going to follow God's commandments so that way we give him the best shot to return back to a relationship with him. Now, some people, Christians, will hear, hear those kinds of decisions and they'll say, that just, that's just going to do a lot. That's going to make things worse. And you know what? There was an elder that I was talking to about this, and the congregation that they were at, he had to read that letter about his own daughter. And he was one of the people that said, this cannot be neglected. This is the most important thing we can do for her. To, for her security and for her sake, we need to do this. And also for ours as well, because we want to be obedient to Christ. Someone had gone up to, the, to his daughter, a, a member of that congregation, and she had said, you know what, I think that it was just so rude and mean what they did to you. How, how they said that they are not going to uh, act like nothing's happened. How they, how they had to announce that it seems that you have gone astray. I, I wouldn't have done it that way. I just feel so sorry about that. And they even went a little bit further. But the elder had heard about that. And he just he confronted the woman and he said, where do you think you got the authority to say anything like that? Uh, I mean, were we wrong? Has, has she not gone astray? Is she not living in open rebellion? Well, no. I mean, she is. 
Has she forsaken the assembly? Well, I mean, she has. Okay, so where in the world did you think you could get away saying something like that? She's left speechless. There was no defense, and often there isn't. We need to think through these things before we say them, before we do them. We need to know why we are staying away from certain things. Not just because God has drawn a line, but because this is what would please Him. Um, finally, we need to be make sure that we are not ashamed of the suffering that comes with obeying the gospel. You could just read 2 Timothy chapters, uh, chapter 1 and verses 8, 12, and 16 again as, as it talks about the chains that Paul was under in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20. Philippians chapter 1, <clears throat> Paul talk, speaks of this again. Beginning in verse 19, it says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He's talking about, I mean, he is in chains. He is in prison. He's writing about rejoicing in prison. And as he's writing about this, he says, I'm, I'm not going to be ashamed by this. This is what's going to bring glory to God. And this ultimately brings us to our text in 1 Peter chapter 4. That was uh, on the title screen earlier. 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse, <clears throat> in verse 12 beginning. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. What has He said so far? Don't be surprised when you are afflicted, when you're persecuted even for your faith. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffer as a, suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Now, again, what's the implication? Well, if you suffer as a murderer, if you suffer as a thief, well, then that shame is deserved. But if people try to shame you, if they try to make your suffering shame for being a Christian, guess what? They have no power. That's one of the, the, the liberating things about the gospel is people that, that should have power over you. You think about the instruction he gives about turning the other, the other cheek. Someone, a soldier, a centurion could go up to a Jew, slap him across the tree, cheek and really have no repercussions. What is the Jew going to do? Well, I mean, they're subject to the Roman Empire. There's nothing they can do. Who wins? The centurion. But who, who wins when it comes to slapping the cheek of a Christian? Imagine the scene. A soldier comes up and he beats the, the Christian. And the Christian gets up and he says, would you like to do the other one? <laughs> Who's got the power there? Well, it's clearly not the soldier. He was trying to exert power over you. But what you show is that there is power that transcends your authority. And that comes with the gospel. And, and, and oh my, what a shock that would be to someone who sees that, who hears about that. And there's all kinds of ways that people can try to shame us simply for being Christians, simply for following after Christ. You think about, especially young people, people in high school, they, they, they are told that, that we are supposed to be, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, flee immorality. People could come up and say, what a prude. Are you, you guys, I mean, do you, do you not, you, you know, this was something that happened to a, a fellow that I had really had high regard for. And, and, and someone went up to him and said, so you just don't like girls, huh? Is that, is that why? He said, no, 
I mean, I, I believe in what Christ has taught me. But that's an insult that people would like to try and bring. Now that's for uh, younger people, I'm sure. I'm sure that's not something that maybe we would hear as, as you get out of high school and you get past some of those maybe more childish insults. But surely the suffering never stops. But that's okay. Because, again, where does the power lie? It's not in the one who persecutes. It's not in the one who brings the affliction. It's the one who has broken the bonds of death and has promised that he will give that reward to us. In Matthew chapter 10, in verse 32, the last thing that we absolutely cannot afford to be ashamed of is Jesus. Matthew 10, beginning in verse 32, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That's the final question I want to ask. Have you shown that you are ashamed of Christ, or have you shown that you are ashamed to not have Christ? If you feel that shame that comes with sin inevitably... Just understand that this lesson was not to make you feel worse and worse about yourself. It was to show you that the gospel, Christ, can break you of that shame. He can break you of that guilt. But it only comes through submission and obedience to him. Are you willing to repent of everything he says that needs to be let go of? Are you willing to confess that he is going to be your king? Confess that he is the son of the living God to be baptized in newness of life. If we can help you in that by any means, please come forward and let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.